Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Quick weather update. It is horrible. English weather here in Florida. <laughs> ah, well, we were in the mountains in Colorado until recently, and it was really quite lovely up there. Um, I don't ski myself, but it was good skiing weather for people who do ski. Question for you, because you keep up with legal stuff a bit more than I do. Um, how bad was Breyer? I think you have to set the question w- w- within the broader issue of what you want out of a judge. He certainly isn't a stupid man. He wasn't ill-tempered. But I don't think well, he did his job. Well, if you're the sort of person who wants the sort of thing out of a judge that you should want out of a judge, which is someone who applies the law rather than making stuff up as he goes, how bad was Breyer? Pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> you know, I um, I don't know that much about his career. I know that um, I remember him ruling two different ways onto uh, Ten Commandments cases. And I remember reading his opinion in that. And the second one where he was clearly responding to political pressure and was coming up with some pretext for why the, I think it was the Tennessee case uh, that was different from the Texas case that had come before it. Uh, because one of them was, you know, really, really, really just in motivation. The other one was just a little bit really just in motivation, that sort of thing. What else, though? Well, I'll give you a bad couple. Bad on abortion, I guess. Of course. I'll give you a couple of examples. Justice Breyer had a judicial philosophy that he described as engendering active liberty. He thought that it was his job to involve the citizenry in democratic processes as much as is possible. And that wasn't his job. His job was to interpret the Constitution as it was written and originally understood. Why originally understood? Because that's the only source of his power. That's the only source of the Constitution's power, that it was ratified by a majority. If it wasn't ratified by a majority or if its meaning has changed, then there is no justification for the Supreme Court to be interpreting or overturning laws. Now, when Justice Breyer was nominated, the political issues that motivated Americans were a little different than they are at the moment, although this may change again. One of the big questions was the death penalty, crime. And Breyer was sold to the country as a, a moderate... Which I hate as a term when discussing constitutional interpretation because as Justice Scalia said, what is a moderate position on constitutional text? Halfway between where it is and where you'd like it to be. But he was sold as a moderate. <laughs> well, I think practically speaking, that's true, yes. <laughs> he sold us a moderate because he was not going to be one of those lefty judges who went after the death penalty. But he did. Now, <laughs> that's not a problem for a politician. In fact, I'm opposed to the death penalty myself. But it is a problem for a Supreme Court justice. He crowbarred in at any possible juncture, especially later in his career, this idea that the time had come to abolish the death penalty. And this is nonsense. The Constitution explicitly contemplates the death penalty. It mentions it in two specific places. And I think that shows... Neither for the purpose of prohibiting it. No. And I would be quite happy if it did 
And I would consider a constitutional amendment that did that. But Justice Breyer seemed to think that it was his job to impose it. Second example, in the recent oral arguments uh, in the case that may end up overturning Rowan Casey, Dobbs, he said in one of his long speeches from the bench that the American public had decided to hand this question to the Supreme Court and ask them to resolve it. That's not true. No, it really isn't. First off, even if it were true, it would be an unacceptable usurpation of power. That's not what the Supreme Court is for. But it didn't do that. If anything, the Supreme Court stepping in when it did made it more difficult for the public to debate the question of abortion because it took the matter out of their hands. And I have no uh, dislike of Justice Breyer as a man, uh, by all accounts, he's a really good person. But he didn't understand his job, and I can't respect that. Or maybe he did understand his job, because it's not that hard to understand, and he just made a point of not doing it. And this is where I've always sort of, um, I don't, how to put this, I think we should always try to understand the other side's point of view, and not treat it as, um, on its face, illegitimate. But the question of does the text of the Constitution and the text of the laws mean what they say, it's a disagreement that I have a really hard time getting my head around because that's why we write stuff down, you know, so that it's not subject to constant reinterpretation every time there's a slight change in public opinion or a slight change in the political culture or every time there are events that um, may cause the public to feel very strongly one way or another about an issue, we write this stuff down so that it's permanent. And then if we don't like what we've written down, we can change it. So what I'm always, you know, no one's ever really been able to satisfactorily explain to me from the you know, kind of living constitution camp is if that is the case, why do we write it down? I mean, there are countries with unwritten constitutions, um, you know, they're traditional and um, Britain, right? Exactly. Uh, I think you know something about that country. You well, lived there at one point, right? Were you were in Florida. You and I agree on this. Um, yeah. And, and this is the area in which I am most sure of my opinions, and I'm most emphatic in them. Mm-hmm. As you say, I, I, while I have strong views, I try hard to understand the other side. I absolutely understand, for example, why people want single payer healthcare. I grew up in a country that. Mm-hmm. Has single payer healthcare, and in which single payer healthcare is extremely popular. I, I understand I have, why people want abortion rights, or why they don't like free speech, or why they want to ban guns. Yeah, I understand all of that. I don't understand this because not only do you have the democratic problem that I uh, went through, you also have the question of to what one, as a judge, could possibly be moored if not the text as it was originally understood. We don't have a council of revision. We don't have a, a, a cast of priests in our constitutional order, or at least we're not supposed to. Hmm. That is not a, a function of I our government. I have remarked from time to time how much the Supreme Court physically resembles the Iranian uh, Guardian Council, you know, with the black robes and the ceremonial processions and such. Yeah. Well, the founders debated having a, a council of revision. Yeah. And they decided against it. And 
If you go back to the Constitutional Convention and much of the reaction to the Constitutional Convention and the document that it produced, you will find the founders warning against playing with the text. Thomas Jefferson uh, warned that the United States had a peculiar security in its written constitution. He said, let us not make it a blank paper by construction. And I'm afraid that the progressive legal project seeks to do just that. Yeah. And this is from Jefferson, a guy who thought we should probably scrap the whole thing every generation or so and start over. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. it was hardly Justice Scalia. Not, so, a, not a Tory at heart. No, no. And then, of course, people say, well, don't you think the times change? Or they point to flaws in the original Constitution. And the answer is yes, yes times change. <laughs> and yes, there were flaws. And that's why we have an amendment process. Yeah. You know, who is it? I, it might have been Scalia who I'm thinking of who wrote this, but it might have been Thomas. Something you alluded to earlier, but I think that people maybe don't appreciate all that much, is the question of legitimacy and consent. That the Constitution, as written, was ratified. People agreed to it. No one has agreed to live by a government of Justice Breyer's fancy. No. And of course, there are reasonable and inevitable questions of interpretation that will arise from any text but we're not really debating that one question i get asked a great deal is well how does a court in any definitive sense decide what is reasonable firearms regulation or what is reasonable speech regulation and i will grant that in the particulars that is tough but that is not a license for uh untrammeled interference. I mean, for example... It's like when people say, well, no right is absolute. Right. And therefore that justifies anything. Yeah, and it doesn't. If you look at the First Amendment, it is true that there are some restrictions on speech, but they are all at the bleeding edge. And yes, you could have looked at any of the major free speech cases in the last hundred years and come out a little differently here and there. What you cannot do is read the right out of the Constitution completely or alter what words such as freedom or of or speech mean and meant in their original context. And I'm afraid that all too often that is what progressive judges do. Now, yes, there are some bad so-called conservative judges as well, but by and large, the conservative legal project is set up to... Uh, preserve the Constitution as it was written and amended, and by and large, the progressive project is not. And that's why you hear figures such as President Obama praising Sonia Sotomayor for her empathy. And that's why Mazi Hirono, mm-hmm. senator from Hawaii, said today, a few moments before we began recording this podcast, that she hopes that the replacement for Breyer will look beyond the law and at how her decisions affect people. Mm-hmm. It's not the job. Yeah, it shouldn't be the job. You have to kind of appreciate the senator, though, for um, uh, saying the quiet part out loud. For saying, you know, I hope the justice will ignore the law um, when doing so is convenient for political reasons. Although Obama did much the same thing, where he talked about you know all the things outside the law that um, a judge should be uh, considering, which of course is just. Um, a recipe for making a court into something that isn't a court. And I talked about this with Justice Gorsuch when I wrote my piece on him for the magazine. And he, mm-hmm. he said that it was uh, 
on the record this is. He said that it was just strange to sit and be questioned by senators who seem to believe quite genuinely that his decisions in various cases were motivated by what he thought of the plaintiffs. And he said yeah. it was odd. He, he it was a famous case involving a truck driver. And he said he got the impression halfway through the hearing that the senators who were criticizing him for his decision really thought that he must have something against truck drivers. <laughs> right. And that this is well, not how justices yeah. think. You know, what's funny about that, though, is so if there were a judge or a nominee with that kind of an issue who was making decisions based on biases against uh, against um, plaintiffs or defendants, we wouldn't want that person on the court. But, of course, that's exactly what our Democratic friends demand when they talk about empathy and such things, to elevate this person above that person, irrespective of what the law says, because of how we feel about this person or that person. Yes, and there are many ugly examples in history of, of why that is a bad idea. Um, anyhow, Breyer is going to step down. He's 83. Good luck to him. I hope he has a long and fruitful retirement, and he will be replaced by someone who's going to do exactly what he did on the court and maybe more. <laughs> but, not, uh, but not Kamala Harris, you're saying? Not uh, Kamala Harris, no. Uh, although uh, apparently it will be a black woman, I have to say, I just loathe this approach. I don't like that President Reagan promised to appoint a woman. Mm -hmm. I have no problem that President Reagan appointed a woman. I don't like that he made that a campaign promise. I don't like that George H.W. Bush clearly thought that it was incumbent upon him to replace Thurgood Marshall with another black man, although I am thrilled that he did, because on the merits, I think Clarence Thomas is terrific at his job. And yeah. I don't like this either. Uh, in all other areas of the federal government, what President Biden is doing here would be illegal under the Civil Rights Act. It's not here most likely because the Constitution lays out this process and there are no qualifications or exceptions included. But this is an ugly way of going about this question. And it, it's perverse because you know, President Biden says that he's going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. And that black woman will most likely have a judicial philosophy that aligns with Joe Biden's and does not align with the Republicans which means that the Republicans, maybe with a couple of exceptions, are going to vote against this nominee, at which point the Democratic Party, and we're already seeing it start, is going to say, well, what, what problem do you have with black women? Yes, <laughs> As if it's the Republicans who have been obsessed with race and sex rather than the Democrats. And yeah. I, I think it's just no way to run a railroad. No, it's not. Um well, you know, thinking of which, um, these people do literally run a railroad um, in Amtrak, and it's not really all that well run. So um, I think that um, that Joe Biden something. loves that railroad too. It's one of his great joys in life. I told you about being on a train with him, right? You know the story. Um, oh, remind me. Well, it's um, it's it's super annoying because you know Joe Biden's whole thing of taking the train is because like you know he's a regular guy. And uh, but of course, he's not a regular guy. And uh, even before he was president. So I was on a train with him and uh, I guess it was hmm, he must have been out of office as vice president by that point. He wasn't still vice president. 
And um, so he's on a train. And, of course, he drives all the way up to Philadelphia to get on the train because I guess it's more convenient for him than getting on the train somewhere in Delaware. And they rope off like the first, uh, I don't know, eight rows in first class so that no one can get near him, of course. And so he's sitting there in this giant roped off section kind of by himself. And um, but of course, they have like 30 Secret Service. And so every time the train stops at every station, they, um, you know, swarm the platform, secure everything, blah, 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 to make sure that uh, that he's OK. And then when they finally get into Washington, they have to hold everyone on the train for, you know, 20 minutes while Biden daughters off and gets off the platform. So it's a ginormous inconvenience for everybody so that he can do this, um, you know, performative thing of being the regular guy on the train. It'd be much easier for everyone if they would just spend the money to send him on a helicopter. No, nah, but he doesn't want to go on a helicopter. <clears throat> Why not? Is he afraid or he just wants to No, no, because he really genuinely seems to love trains. Yeah, I don't know. You know, this was a long time ago when I was on that train with him. And I just I think about it because he looked like a frail, lost old man then. And that must have been nine years ago, 10 years ago. That story you just related reminds me of a stunt that Jeremy Corbyn pulled. Well, it couldn't have been that long ago. Sorry, take that back. Anyway, go ahead, please. When Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, he sat on the floor of a train in Britain and had his photograph taken and then used the picture to complain about the overcrowding on the trains, which he blamed. Oh, yeah, I remember that story, yeah. Yeah, on the privatisation of the railways. Right. And it turned out that uh, Virgin Trains wasn't particularly thrilled to be used in mm. this way, ha- had CCTV footage of Corbyn walking through that a completely is. empty train carriage and declining to sit down and then going into the vestibule of the train and sitting on the floor to have his photograph taken. <laughs> Ah, good riddance to him. You you figure his political career is pretty well over. I suspect that it is, yeah. Yeah, no comebacks for uh, for Corbin. Why don't we introduce another topic, Kevin? Can we talk about vaccines and vaccine <laughs> mandates since you and I were uh, going back and forth on that? I think we should. Do you want to outline your position for Well, listeners? sure. Um, I think that... Um, this is an example, sometimes at least, of what I call single-serving libertarianism, of people who are perfectly happy to countenance all sorts of intrusions into life on all sorts of grounds, picking up on this issue for largely uh, culture war issues. So as I was writing in my uh, little corner post, was the corner post or an article? I remember one or the other. Um, I was in uh, Aspen, Colorado, and uh, – they have pretty aggressive, you know, masking rules and stuff there. For a while, you had to wear them outside, um, but they've stopped that. So I went to this uh, restaurant to have breakfast, and it was one of those silly things where you have to wear a mask, you know, when you come in the door and you go to the stand where you talk to the hostess and they sit, seat you and you can take your mask off when you when you sit down. And it's one of those places where you are literally sitting close enough to everyone else that you're basically touching the people on both sides of you. So the idea that you're somehow protecting yourself by wearing a mask when you're standing up and then taking it off when you get to your table is just absurd. And I think a lot of the you know rules with um, masking are largely symbolic and ceremonial. Same thing with airplanes where 
I could understand if they said um, you don't have to wear a mask on an airplane. I could understand if they said, well, um, you do have to wear a mask on the airplane because it's too dangerous for you not to. But I really don't understand the rule that says, well, yeah, you got to wear a mask unless you're having a Bloody Mary or a cookie, in which case you, know, you can lift it up, take it down, lift it up, take it down, lift it up, take it down, which is just silly stuff. On the other hand, um, I do believe that we should probably continue to pressure people at the very least on uh, getting vaccines, which, among other things, make people less contagious. Um, and I also think that just as, a, you know, the general um, benefits of not having the uh, hospitals overrun and all the rest of that stuff probably make it worth it to uh, to continue to encourage people to get vaccines. And that's probably the best thing that we can do is get the vaccination rate up as high as we can and otherwise try to let life go back to normal. And I don't think in principle that I'm against uh, vaccine mandates, um, particularly when it comes to things like healthcare workers and government workers of various kinds, uh, but also when employers want to do it, when uh, restaurants and hotels do it on their own steam. I think that's that's OK, too. We require vaccines of all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons, most notably children who want to go to public schools. Um, we require them of immigrants, uh, such as yourself. We require them of military personnel. And uh, I don't think this is a monstrous invasion of uh, liberty in any of these cases. Um, I understand that there are people who have honest objections to them, but I don't think most of the objections to them actually are all that honest. I think it's become just a silly culture war thing, and it's essentially a form of performative self-harm. And I think there are a lot of people on the right who are not anti-vax kooks themselves, but feel the need to accommodate it um, as a political matter and to kind of make room for it and give it a veneer of respectability and all that. And I'm just, uh, I'm not inclined to go along with that. My disagreement with you is, is twofold. Hmm. I am, as you know, not an anti-vax kook or indeed anti-vax at all. I have uh, got both my initial shots and I got the booster. I've also had COVID. So I'm feeling uh, fine. I am against the mandates. Now, we can argue about government mandates, but <clears throat> I think it is important here, and this was the core of our disagreement, on the corner to distinguish between categories such as immigrant child who wishes to use government school and enlisted soldier <laughs> and private American citizen. I don't think, and you used the word in your post, that there is a precedent here for the federal government demanding that Americans be vaccinated before they may get on a plane. The four examples you gave were all related to areas in which the government has plenary control. Well, the federal government doesn't have plenary control over your kindergarten. No, but your state authority does, and the federal government doesn't impose a vaccine mandate on it. The state does. Hmm. So when we talk about mandates we talking about governments three cases of federal government in one case is a state government requiring 
something from you if you wish to use a government service. So you mentioned right. so you may, uh, again, but I, I think I, okay, go ahead. Please. Well, you mentioned federal student aid, which was a <laughs> system run by the government. They used to require you enlist in the secret, uh, secret, <laughs> the selective secret service, service yeah. <laughs> uh, in the selective service. Well, that's a federal agency saying you may take money from us if you uh, are willing to serve in the military if we're invaded. Uh, in the case of immigrants, if you forgive me for interrupting you just a second, but you're oversimplifying that. So for a long time, the federal you know financial aid forms that you had to fill out if you wanted to get financial aid weren't just for federal programs. There was no way to get financial aid at all without filling those out. In a lot of universities, you couldn't get things like student housing and that sort of thing. So unless you had the money out of pocket to just simply pay for college, um, it was very difficult to. Um, go to a university without um, filling out this form. And you couldn't fill out the form, of course, unless you'd registered for selective service. So it very practically speaking was a requirement that um, unless you happen to be from a household that has the money in hand to uh, pay for college outright, if you want to go, you have to you know comply with this thing. Yeah. So it's a little more than what you're talking about. Okay, fair enough. But it was still a federal form uh, that the federal government used to facilitate a service to which you're not entitled. and. Uh, the immigration system works in much the same way. Uh, I did indeed have all sorts of vaccinations, but I had no right to be in the United States. That was the price of coming here. I also went through all sorts of other hoops that I wouldn't expect to as an American citizen. I was asked about my associations in college and my political views. and Which were uh, questionable. Of course. Uh, and I was fingerprinted and photographed and background checked and all sorts. Um, uh, then there's soldiers. Well, clearly soldiers give up an enormous amount of their right. liberty when they elect to become soldiers or if they're drafted. And uh, children in schools uh, are hoping to use a government service that is provided for free, and uh, they don't have to go there. What, yeah, I think what, you're drawing a really fine line, though, between, I, well, you know, we have public schools that are provided by the government. We have federal airlines that are very heavily regulated ah, by that's, the government. But that, in one uh, case, they're not the same. No. Yeah, no, it's not slicing and dicing. I think there is a profound difference they're between those They're not precisely the same thing, no. But um, we accept all sorts of other uh, you know, violations of our liberties No, you see, here's a, good, here's a good example of, of the difference. Uh, in the state of Florida, uh, the um, federal and state governments regulate firearms to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not allowed to carry a gun into the post office because the federal government has decided that that is illegal. Mm-hmm. The federal government runs and owns the post office. It employs the people who work in the post office. It mm-hmm. is a federal facility. Right. I am allowed to carry a gun, even though the restaurant is regulated by both the federal and, in some ways, and the state in most ways, government. I am allowed to carry a gun into the Cheesecake Factory. Mm-hmm. And it would be a far greater intrusion for either the federal or state government to tell me that I was not allowed to carry a gun into a private company that was willing uh, to allow carry than it would be to regulate the post office, which it owns. Right, but which the government doesn't own the airlines, but they tell you you can't carry a gun on an airplane. Yeah, I understand that. But there is a precedent here for government regulating interstate commerce mm-hmm. in in some fairly elementary ways, all the way back to steamboats and canals. 
There is no precedent, and you used the word, not me. There is no precedent. Even throughout polio, there was no precedent whereby the federal government would impose a vaccine requirement on private businesses that it regulated in one way or another. And I think it would be a a, a remarkable step. Now, you might think it's a good step, and we can argue about that. But I don't think it would be quite the, wow, we already do this, this, and this that you've suggested. I think it would be a really big step. So the federal government can regulate whether you carry toothpaste on an airplane, but it can't regulate uh, vaccinations on airplanes as a public health matter. Well, I think that it is clearly uh, a much bigger deal uh, to ask somebody to inject drugs into their body, which I'm fine to do. Again, this is not anti-vaccine than mm-hmm. it is to ask them not to carry toothpaste on a plane. There's a reason why uh, we have all sorts of little regulations in our history, but the, the big ones um, are either avoided completely or have caused enormous pushback. There's also mm-hmm. a reason why so we you have think never... a vaccine is a lot more invasive than, say, an x-ray or a body scan? Yes, absolutely I do. Because okay. of... Well, a vaccine is permanent. And again, I don't want to give the impression that I think there is anything particularly scary about this vaccine. But I also don't think that matters. I don't believe in God, but I I respect the right to conscience and that other people disagree. So, yeah, I, I, I think that asking somebody to get a vaccine before they can use private um, interstate travel is is a, a big, big ask that is unprecedented, and I think that matters. Yeah, so I mean, what you're really saying is we accept this invasive regulation, we accept this invasive measure, but not this one. This one's special. We're going to come up with a case for this one, why this one shouldn't be. And um, I just, I don't buy it. It seems like special pleading to me. No, I, I'm not saying that I'm making uh, a special case or an exception. I'm saying that this exists in... Um, a profound category that none of the other impositions on air travel do, including masks. And I don't like the mask rule, but I don't think that the mask rule is equivalent to asking people to get a vaccine that they can't reverse. Hmm. Now, on the merits of it, I think that it's illiberal and counterproductive. But, I mean, that is a a separate question. For what it's worth, even if we were trying to achieve your aim, which is essentially to annoy people into getting vaccinated, and I agree it would be good if they were vaccinated, I just I just don't think that these federal rules will help. And I think that's why um, the moment the OSHA regulation, which was illegal, went down, mm-hmm. uh, a, a considerable number of large companies dropped them because they recognized that they were... Well, either they were not going to have the desired effect or they were going to lose too many staff. Mm-hmm. But that's a question of efficacy. So do you think it was a crime against humanity when we drafted all those people to go fight in World War II? No, I don't. Hmm. So go to the street, grab someone, say your choices are join the army or go to jail. Okay. Okay. Tell but let- people, well, we're going to make life difficult for you if you don't have a vaccine. Okay. Well, do you think we should grab people from the street and vaccinate them? I, I could see, like, you know, Marlon Perkins' assistant Jim with one of those dart guns uh, going out there. Um, no, but I don't think that's really a matter of uh, principle difference. I think it's a matter of um, prudence and pragmatism. 
Suppose, so I will, I will accept your implicit argument that what I'm arguing for could be used to justify that. Yeah, suppose that coronavirus were much more deadly. Yeah. And that's when you get then away from an argument of principle and an argument about um, prudence. And, um, you know, what yeah, this but, makes but me... it is an argument of principle in the sense that what we are talking about here is... We're talking about emergency powers and using, uh, taking unusual measures during unusual times. Yeah, but the primary purpose of the vaccine is to protect the person who gets it. And so ultimately, this is a question of individual responsibility. Yes and no. I mean, there are big social costs uh, on the other side, you know, in terms of having hospital sex systems overwhelmed in terms of personal infectiousness and those sorts of things. So those are, those are real issues as well. What evidence is there that a mandate is going to help that? I don't know that there's evidence that a mandate is going to help that. There is pretty good evidence that someone who's vaccinated and has a breakthrough infection is about 50% less likely to infect other people than someone who isn't vaccinated. And that's significant. But if the vaccine works, which it does, I guess we just come back to the the question of whether or not this is ultimately a case of individual responsibility. I mean, I, I don't see any signs that the hospitals are being overwhelmed, even with the, the high infection rate of Omicron. Uh, I, I see this now as an issue of individual choice because... The people who are going to suffer if they don't get vaccinated, and this is why I got vaccinated, are the people who die. And there is a great deal of nonsense spoken about the vaccine on the right. The idea that it doesn't work, that it doesn't make a difference. Of course it does. Uh, but you know, I, I don't think that's really the the only question here. And and I would analogize this to the the contraception mandate. When we were debating this under Obama, this quickly descended into a, a debate over whether or not contraception was good or, or work. <clears throat> to me, that was never relevant. I am pro-contraception, and it is preposterous to suggest that somebody who's using contraception is not less likely uh, to get pregnant than, than somebody who is. The question is whether uh, the social costs that the advocates of contraception mandates could list outweighed the illiberalism of imposing one and mm -hmm. um my view was that it did and and um or rather did not and and my view is the same here i mean but as i say th this part i think is a is a is a in a sense a political debate i mean this is a this is a a reasonable question um what i object to is the notion that well, we already do this, this, and this, then why don't we just add this into the mix? I, well, I, I think you're I talking think about two different the things. There's a question of whether it's a good policy or not a good policy, but there's the question of whether it's a policy that's completely out of bounds or one that isn't. And I think that um, people tend to go back and forth on those um, according to whatever's politically convenient at the moment. Have you ever read um, C.S. Lewis's little bit on uh, the anti-witch campaigns in the Middle Ages? <laughs> Well, it's really useful, actually, um, because what, what Lewis argues is that um, we treat this as a moral dispute, that um, it was a wrong thing for people to do, and they needed to be morally educated to keep them from behaving that way. But what it actually is is a factual dispute. And so his argument is if there actually were 
witches among us, and they had these powers, and they used them to kill people and make them sick, cause crop failures, uh, that sort of thing. We would want to treat them as very serious criminals, as murderers, and that would be a completely reasonable uh, thing to do. The thing is, there aren't any witches, and that's the real issue, is whether this is a true thing, whether it's not a true thing. And I think that um, on the vaccine stuff, we also bounce back and forth between those, where we'll talk about you know questions of what is a proper government power, what is not a proper government power, and then it becomes, oh, but the vaccines don't really work, or oh, it's not actually all that big a deal, or this, that, or the other thing. And um, it seems to me to be a very, in many cases, not your case, I'm not saying this about you, uh, but often a dishonest and intentionally dishonest conversation, which is why I find it so vexatious. But while that is true of witches, and I accept Lewis's point, it's not true of other rights that we protect, despite having evidence in many cases that they are or lead to damage. I mean, we... Well, I don't know about you, but I, I would remain in favor of free speech, even if it could be proven that the things that we don't prosecute people for saying cause real medical harm to others. I would be in favor of jury trials, even if it could be proven that the rules that we use to try the accused were leading to innocent um uh, guilty men going free and killing people. Which I don't think we even have to prove. I think we all kind of know that. Right. So, yeah. you know. And the opposite is true. Sometimes, sometimes innocent people get convicted. Sure. So the I. The fact that a system isn't perfect isn't necessarily an argument against that system. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we already look at various social costs or potential downsides or or real tangible risks and say, okay, but I don't think the government should be able to do that. And the reason I'm focused on precedent is that if the government already does this, then there's much less of an objection uh, in law and in culture. But I don't think the government does already do this. I think you're proposing crossing a Rubicon. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be radically different to say, well, kindergartners have to get their vaccines and now dentists have to get their vaccines. But kindergartners don't have to get their vaccines. They have to get oh, their vaccines. It's va essentially impossible for people with children to lead a normal life unless they're very, very wealthy people without sending their kids to public schools. It is difficult, but it's not mandatory. And the Well, no, it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory for you to fly. It's no, not mandatory for you to it's travel. Not, it's not the mandatory federal... for you to do anything. It's not mandatory for you to have a podcast. No, that's true. But the federal government has a different relationship with the airlines than state schools have with schools. They own mm -hmm. those schools. They run those schools. Right. They're funded by taxpayers. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is different in such a way as to preclude what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean that it is categorically unable to um, preclude it, no. But it does mean that we are talking here about imposing a regulation that has never been imposed before. Well, and, isn't that true of every regulation? Uh, well, and that's, that's why, why they're new. And that's why we're conservatives, is that we, <laughs> we read them and say, well, hold on a moment. Hmm. And hold on a moment is often a very good uh, point of view, but um, it doesn't seem to me that the principal 
impetus for these objections is actually conservative. I mean, this it is, is. Go ahead. This is a practical objection. You're right on that, but there is another difference here, and that is that this vaccine, which again I trust, uh, is new. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the vaccines that are mandated in schools or were mandated as part of my immigration process are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they it, were new at some point. And they weren't mandated for a long time after they had been introduced into the population at large. I don't have the figures on hand, but I was reading about this the other day. Polio took years to be mandated, uh, as did most of the, if not all of the vaccines that were mandated in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that I had to get were for TB and polio and Pertussis. tetanus. Yeah. Um, and I think that's another objection people have is is the rapidity with which this has not merely been offered, but is being um, set up as an obstacle to participating in private life. Or maybe they're just kooks and we make excuses for them because they vote for us. But I didn't vote for me, and I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I, I don't vote for me either. I mean, again, I, I think it would be a dangerous road to go down to start conflating one's position on government mandates with one's position on the underlying question uh, or, or, or matter that was being mandated. Hmm. I mean, are nuns kooks because they don't want to pay for abortion drugs the left thinks so Mm. but i think there's also that has to involve the underlying question of the rightness and wrongness of abortion okay but what about condoms i mean nuns don't want to pay for condoms either or or the pill yeah i think there are uh some immediate pragmatic questions that come to mind when you're talking about 85 year old celibates but, no, but, um, <laughs> but I think there's a conscience question. I mean, there's a town in yeah, Georgia yeah. that mandates that everyone who lives there owns a firearm. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a very good idea. I think that's... No, a, the local gun dealer probably does, though. <laughs> I think that that's a violation. I don't think it's illegal, probably, but I think it's a, a, it's a conscience violation. No doubt, no doubt. But, of course, they say no because it's good societally and the costs of having an unarmed population are too high and this town has no crime and nobody's going to break into your house. And, look, what's the difference between that and mandating people have insurance? And then, you know... (laughs) Although, I mean, that really is the question that has to be answered, right? Because we do accept the legitimacy of all sorts of mandatory things we accept the legitimacy of all sorts of emergency powers but that doesn't mean well because we accept that we can have a draft when there's a war that we also accept that we can order people to do peacetime public service no but for example a risk of, of bringing up the distinction you think is slicing and dicing we are pretty good about distinguishing between private and public and while it's true that you have to have car insurance if you wish to drive on public roads i.e. roads that were built by the government and are run and ma- run and maintained by the government it's mm-hmm. not true that you have to have insurance in order to drive on private land that's true and i see the same even though that private land may be regulated by the government and i see that same distinction obtaining here when it comes to the airlines and mm. all right <laughs> what else do you want to talk about? I think we've done this one to death. I think so. Well, I could 
quickly mention that I'm now teaching my course. Oh, good. What is your course again? Chapter the history of the right to keep and bear arms. Oh yeah, uh, we're in week one. You can still sign up. So if you didn't sign up in time and have cried yourself to sleep every night thinking about your missed opportunity, it's not actually too late. You won't have missed anything. The whole course is done asynchronously, which means that I'm not sitting in front of you or timing anything. I'm not saying meet me at eleven o'clock and I'll t- tell you all about colonial America. Um, it's all done on your own time, so you could still sign up at uh, at chapter getchapter.app. Very good. You know, it just occurs to me while we're talking. I am sitting in my office, and I have a fireplace in here. And over the mantel, uh, there's some pictures in order, and they are uh, Saint Jerome uh, to the left of him, Abraham Lincoln, or to the right of him, rather, Abraham Lincoln, and then to the right of him. Uh, John Brown. And I think maybe that's my political spectrum there. And on different days, I, I yeah. feel different places on there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So maybe I'm uh, I'm leaning more toward uh, St. Jerome this week and a little less away from the uh, anarchic uh, John Brown. I think you may be further away from John Brown habitually than you were 10 years ago when we started this. I am. Actually, I've been writing a thing about this that um, it's, it's very difficult to write because it's um, – it's a it's a fairly subtle argument to make. But one thing that really has changed about my political opinions in the last 10 years is that I think the American people are less fit for liberty than I did 10 years ago. I think they're less able to be uh, trusted and to make the most of it than I once did. Was John Brown trusted to make the most of it? Well, that's a great example, right? So um, slavery is an absolute evil, should be fought. Um, John Brown did horrible things in the name of fighting slavery, including massacring people who didn't have a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, anytime you kind of um, you open that door up and let people off the chain a little bit, um, things tend to go wrong. You know, I've written about this um, oh, a million years ago. You and I were having a, a conversation about the uh, Bundys and that land use uh, dispute in Nevada, wasn't it? That's right. And I recruited and, uh, Abraham Lincoln's view of the law to my side in arguing against you. Uh, you have a better memory than I do, yeah. And uh, But as I wrote um, in my piece about that, you know, you have to be careful with these things because a lot of people who think they're John Brown end up being Tim McVeigh. And a lot of people who think they are Mohandas Gandhi end up being the Irish Republican Army. Um, I am sympathetic towards civil disobedience. I'm increasingly uh, eager to draw the line between uh, nonviolent and violent forms of civil disobedience. I certainly have more admiration for people who are willing to pay a price for that civil disobedience, who you can go to, go to jail for it, as Gandhi did, as Martin Luther King did, as uh, Thoreau did, than people who just want to um, – declare, well, these are my rights, and I'm not going to follow this law, and nothing can be done to me. Mm-hmm. The people who want this kind of uh, consequence-free model of civil disobedience, I think, is um, both immature and uh, possibly dangerous. Yeah, the, the idea that we could break the law in the name of some grand moral crusade, but then expect also to be left alone is absurd. Dan Foster has this this proverb that he 
uses, I think, I think it's Spanish, take what you want and pay for it. Yeah, and pay man. for it bit is... <laughs> is often well, you and I have talked about this before, too, you know, that um, we think that George Washington was right to do what he did and that King George would have been right to hang him if he'd lost. Yes, absolutely. And both these things can be true at the same time. You have to win the revolution. Otherwise, you're just a rebel. <laughs> uh, anyway, so look for that maybe a year from now by the time I can actually sort out what I want to say about all this stuff. Well, you better hope in the course of writing it, you don't move closer to John Brown than Jerome and lose your fire. <laughs> no, I don't think there's uh, there's much danger of that happening exactly. But um, yeah, anyway, that's a long conversation for another time. All right. Well, let's have it at another time. <laughs> Take care, Charles. All right. Bye.